welcome to Mind Money Balance, the no guilt, no shame podcast to help you get your mind and money in balance. I'm your host, Lindsay. I'm a financial therapist and coach, woman of color, and popcorn connoisseur. I am so glad you're here. Let's go. Today's Mind Money Balance guest is a fellow Midwesterner. Alyssa Gerlai is a therapist and private practice in Akron, Ohio. She is a lover of all things business, marketing, and anything money related. This inspired her to create her Instagram page at Creative Practice Building, where she documents her journey to starting and scaling her private practice. Alyssa, like me, is an Enneagram 8 and also an avid lover of Beyonce and a personal finance nerd. Today's interview is so special to me because it really embodies what I believe season two of the Mind Money Balance podcast is all about. And that is that, yes, while I'm focusing on therapists, the reality is as therapists, we have and hold multiple identities. And Alyssa does such a nice job of highlighting kind of her journey with money and how she came to go right into private practice. And I think it's going to be really helpful for you if you have had to overcome some money stories. So for her, and and I'll let her use it in her own words or tell it in her own words, but for her, she had to overcome a lot of this kind of conservative messaging around money and, and the noise, quite literally, that was in the background of her household growing up and how that impacted her relationship to money and how it also shaped what she currently does with her money and how she consumes financial information. So with that, let's dive into today's interview. All right, Alyssa July, thank you so much for joining the Mind Money Balance podcast. Happy to have you. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so let's dive right in. You're a therapist. You're an Enneagram 8. You are a self-described personal finance nerd. Give us the background of who you are and and what you do and how money shows up in your work. And I know that's like the opposite of an appropriate therapist question because I'm supposed to ask one question at a time, but give us your background. Yeah. So I am a therapist in private practice. I've actually only ever been in private practice. I've never done agency work or anything like that. I work with young adults and college students. That's my niche. I work in Akron, Ohio. I'm a fellow Midwesterner. I love, love, love personal finance. I read a different book, multiple books a month probably. I'm starting to run out though. So any recommendations would be great. I know you dropped one on one of my Instagram posts, I think. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. I work out of Akron, very passionate about our population here. Love the Midwest vibes. It's very, very rainy today. So starting to feel like fall. Yes, indeed. Okay. So you've always been in private practice. Tell me about that because I find for so many of my therapist friends, they almost always do agency work or hospital work. How did you know you wanted to jump right into private practice? Yeah. So I think a big part of it for me was that I worked a real job before I did grad school. So my bachelor's degree is in education. So 
I worked at a high school for a couple of years while I was in grad school and also before I was in grad school. And I just realized what a real salary looked like. Not that the education system pays very well at all. That is a low paying industry for sure. But I wasn't, a lot of my friends in grad school were psych majors and they went straight into getting their master's degree and they knew that they wanted to do that. So when they first got out of school, they were like, oh my gosh, like, 35,000, I'll take anything because I've never made money before. And I was sitting in my, I remember my very last class, it was like an internship class where they just helped us along. And it was the final stop before we graduated. And one of the professors asked, like, what do you guys hope to make after you graduate? And people started out like, I don't think anyone said in the 30s, maybe it was like 40,000, 50,000, 60,000. And I was like, Oh gosh, what have I done? Like, I just felt so upset with my choice because I was like, there's no way that I left a job where I could have had that exact same salary. Like, I didn't get a master's to be at the exact same place. So I raised my hand and I don't know what number I said. It was very arbitrary at the time, but it was like the highest number anyone threw out there, probably like a hundred thousand, right? That's like the number that everyone wants. And I just remember being like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to achieve this. And then I found private practice and was like, oh, the possibilities are literally endless. Like, this is amazing. So yeah, I never went into agency life. And I know that people have like qualms about that. A lot of times they say like, how will you get the experience? How are you going to be qualified to be in private practice? And I just find that to be like a super toxic belief that is pushed in our industry. Oh my gosh. I have so many thoughts on this story. So one is that I can completely relate with this idea of not making a lot of money out of grad school. I, in between undergrad and grad school, I did a little bit of like job, job stuff, what I call my RPJ, my real person job. I worked in marketing for a minute and hated it. And I actually went back to waitressing and bartending. And I made more money as a waitress and bartender than I did in my first job out of grad school. And that to me was so unacceptable, so shocking. I couldn't wrap my head around it because in my head, when I heard the annual salary, which as I say it out loud now, I'm like, what was I thinking? It was 32K, which sounded like a lot compared to a server. But in reality, I was making so much more money as a server. I was like, how am I possibly going to make ends meet? And yeah, then thus started my journey of, I need to be able to survive. Like This is not a sustainable life for me. I mean, sure, I could subsist off of rice and beans, but that's not the life that I want. And as you and I both talk about via Instagram, we're Insta friends, it's not okay for us as mental health clinicians to be scraping by and to be struggling financially, which then impacts our mental health and well-being and our ability to care for our clients. So I'm really curious about this question that arose in grad school because that question never came up. The message that I got as a social work student was, you're not here for the money. You didn't choose this field because money is important to you. Don't expect to make a living, dot, dot, dot. And it was always like a ha-ha thing, except that it was real. It was real that we were not going to be making money. That was the expectation. So I'm really curious, what prompted you to answer, oh, I plan on making six figures, and also what it felt like to have that answer in a room of soon-to-be therapists? Yeah. And I will say that was like 
one of the only times we talked about money. Right. Like in my entire <laughs> no program. And it was like one of our last classes. So that also wasn't great. But the professor who taught that class was one of my only professors that even had experience in private practice. So he was like, hey, like this is an option. How much do you guys want to make? So yeah, it felt ridiculous to say it in that room because and also just cocky because you don't know anything at that point. Like you're just a baby therapist. So I knew nothing about marketing, about running a business, about anything. I just knew that like, I wouldn't be happy making 35K a year. That would not be sustainable for me. And I live in a very, very low cost of living area. Like Akron, Ohio is not a huge city. It's, I mean, people like it because it's a low cost of living, but still 35. I mean, a lot of, here's another story I've heard a lot from therapists is like, the only reason I can do the work I do is because my partner or husband is this like main breadwinner in our family. So it's almost viewed as like, here's this hobby that I have. And look, I only make a little bit of money, but my partner can sustain like our lifestyle. And I just feel like that is great if that works for you, like no shame in that. But also like, really, that's all we can expect from our field. And you have a master's degree. Right. Exactly. And that drives me bananas that, that again, our master's level (laughs) profession is regarded as a hobby or a fun thing to do on the side. When it's not, we are highly skilled, highly trained healthcare providers. And we are, you know, that message of the only reason I can be a therapist is because my partner works is so damaging on so many levels. So It sounds like you were ready to go hit the ground running in private practice. You had no issues with money, no money stories you had to overcome or did you? So you will love this part of my story, Lindsay. I grew up in a very conservative household where the main person talking about money was Dave Ramsey. Like I heard Dave Ramsey on the radio. I heard all my friends read whatever his book is called. I think I still own that book somewhere in my house. Mm -hmm. So a huge part of my story is around that same time that I was in grad school, I really started questioning my own like Christian beliefs kind of came out of a very conservative Christian mindset. When I originally got into like my grad program, I thought I was going to be a Christian based therapist. Mm-hmm. And now that is, and no shame if that's the route you're going, that's amazing. But now that is so far from like where I'm at with <laughs> my own practice and my own beliefs. So I had huge money hangups in the sense of like, well, God provides for you. Like, why don't you just believe that God's going to give you the money that you need? Or why are you being greedy? Or so many stories. I mean, and Dave Ramsey has a lot of money advice that I don't agree with. And he's definitely catering to a certain demographic. So I had a lot to unpack Mm -hmm. with that. Yeah. Okay. So for people who don't know who Dave Ramsey is, he is, and I'm incredibly biased because I think his work is incredibly shaming and heteronormative and there's a lot of problems there, but he is hands down. If you type in personal finance books, personal finance budget, his name will almost always be in that top 10 Google search results. He is the bald guy with glasses who pops up and he runs something called Financial Peace University, which sounds 
lovely. And there are some good nuggets in there, the basics of budgeting, how to set goals, but he really exists in this world of this is the only way that you are allowed to manage your money. And if you fall outside of that realm, then you are stupid. And I'm not putting those words in his mouth. He quite literally tells guests on his show, you're dumb, you're stupid if you have debt or if you haven't paid off your credit card bills, or if you don't have an emergency fund, his belief is, in my mind, something that might have worked in the 70s and 80s, and maybe even in the 90s, right? This idea that go to work, save money, eat rice and beans, and you'll be able to retire a millionaire. And he's also very shame-based to folks who maybe do enjoy some material things. If you drive a fancy car, he thinks you're an idiot, right? If you travel, you, you know, he gets cranky about it if you don't have all of these things in place. So how did you move through that kind of indoctrination, if I can call it that, to where you are now? What kind of work did you have to do internally And also like who else helped you get there? Because that's a hard journey to go from growing up with that kind of noise in the background to where you are today, which is as I see you and as I know you as a person who's quite comfortable in her relationship with money and is also open to learning different ways of managing money. So what was that journey like? Yeah. So one big thing with the Dave Ramsey stuff is he did help me pay off my debt. I think a year into private practice, I paid off all my student loan debt. And I was super, super proud of that. Like Dave Ramsey, if he is good for one thing, he is, I loved watching his videos that showed like people talking about their student loan debt and how they were throwing tons of money at it. I didn't fully go by his method because he does tell you to like start with your smallest debts first, which I'm like, come on, interest, like your financial advisor, but I get it. It's like that instant gratification. So after I paid off my student loan debt, though, I started looking into more of like his, I was interested in investing and, you know, just the steps you think of after you stop putting huge lump sums into your student loans. And I just realized that his methods were not, I knew there was better stuff out there. So I found the fire movement people and really just started reading through a lot of their I'm going to pause you. What is FIRE? (laughs) Yeah. So the FIRE movement stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. So basically, it is a group of people who are saving, they say like up to 50%, some people do more, some people do less of their income and putting them into investments, typically index funds, sometimes real estate. Bitcoin. I mean, there's all kinds of things. I think index funds are really like the most common thing. Mm -hmm. And then people do the math, plan it out for when they're going to be able to retire, which will typically be sometime in their 30s. Some people do it before that. Some people wait after. It all really depends. But there's tons of people out there who have retired and then they write books because they have time to write books now that they're retired. So I started going through all of that. And I was really just drawn to it because I knew these people were investing in a way that would be really aggressive and, but also safe, right? Because they want to retire, which investing, I guess, can't be fully safe, right? It's always a little bit of a risk with the market. But reading through that movement was so, so different from anything I had heard. And so I found most of my resources through that. And I had a friend actually who I think I've known about the fire movement since I was like 18 or something. I had a friend who was on it, like 
she was an engineer. She did it right off the bat. So I knew about it. But until I paid off my student loan debt, I was like, I'm not going to put my time into figuring out investing when I just felt like I had to handle that part of my story first. Mm -hmm. Do you consider yourself a member of the FIRE movement? You know, I don't currently because I view what I do as my passion. So, and I know most people who do the FIRE movement and retire early, it's not like they're just retiring and they're just sitting around their house every day, right? Like they find passion projects, they do other things, or they just work less. I already do what I want to do every day. Like I love my job. I wanted to look into it in terms of like how to have the best investments. And I would love to like eventually have my investments be large enough where I could live off of them and maybe take a year off and travel. But I really feel like with private practice, we can already be so flexible and already kind of build the life we want. So I feel like it's a very special thing. Okay. Let's dive into that because I think there is... I think it's hard for a lot of therapists who are in private practice to really embody what you just said, which is we already have the ability to take a month off a year. We already have the ability to invest in index funds. And and again, how did you get there? Because I think so many of us were kind of told you have to see 40 clients a week. You have to do everything sliding scale. You have to take on pro bono clients. So how did you get to this place where you're like, no, I'm, I'm already living the lifestyle I want. I already have the capacity to invest in my retirement. I already have the capacity to take time off if I need to. How did you get there? Because it seems to me like that is like a unicorn in the sky for a lot of people. Yeah, I think honestly doing a lot of mindset work for myself and seeing only aligned clients. Because when I first started private practice, I was really just taking anyone, anyone off the streets that contacted me. I was like, okay, I have this degree now. Here we go. And that led to burnout really, really fast. So I think seeing aligned clients has helped me to feel like, okay, like, I love these clients, but also these clients love me. So I feel more secure in like, if I wanted to take a month off, I would have a caseload that would be waiting for me. Yes, you have to do the thing. Like if I have any high need clients, of course, I'm going to like refer them out or, you know, make a plan or whatever. Yeah. I think seeing aligned clients probably changed my mindset about private practice the most. What do you mean when you say aligned clients? Aligned clients would be clients that are my niche. So I only work with college students and young adults. And I only work with like the specific issues that I have said, like on my website, I have a page for anxiety, a page for depression. I have a high population of transgender clients. So I do gender therapy too. What else? Trauma and school related stress. So Mm -hmm. those are my clients. And when they call me, I can usually tell pretty quick by what they're working with, if they're a good fit. And if they're not, I feel comfortable to say goodbye. Like here's someone I can refer you to that you're going to have a better time with because you're not a fit for me anyways. And I really had to go through the whole like suffering during sessions that I just did not feel like were meant for me. And like, I wasn't being as helpful as I could be, or as another therapist could be, because I'm just not, it's not aligned for me. It's not in my niche or my wheelhouse. I love what you just said about how you're also keeping that client in mind 
by only accepting aligned clients. So many therapists have this fear that if they say no to a client who might be a little bit out of their scope, that somehow they are damaging that client. But what I heard you say is no, saying yes to a client who I'm not the best fit for means they're getting subpar therapy. And we can't do that. We can't, you know, it's within our ethics to only practice within our scope of practice, right? And so when we say no to clients who aren't aligned, what we are really doing is offering them the gift of we are modeling for them the importance of boundaries. We are modeling for them the importance of advocating for what they need. And as we build up our therapeutic network, we can say, hey, here are two therapists in the area who are exactly the type of specialists that you could see. Why don't you try giving them a call, right? By saying no to these clients who aren't a good fit for us, we are actually modeling so much important behavior for these unaligned clients. And I love that that was really folded into your message. So as we kind of move forward, I imagine there have to be some tough money conversations in your work, whether that's with your clients or whether that's with other therapists who are like, how did you end up getting here? What are some of those uncomfortable or tough conversations you've had to have with clients or other therapists? I think I remember when I first was paying off my student loan debt, I had a colleague who was just like, I'm never going to do that. Like, I'm never going to get to do that. And she was like, I'm just going to pay the minimum balance the rest of my life. And I remember that being an uncomfortable conversation because I was so in the thick of paying off my student loans that I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much better for you out there. Like if you pay the minimum balance that you can, it's going to cost you the most possible over time, you know? And if you start making more money, they're going to want more every month. So it's not really like motivating you to make more money either. So I think that was, I remember a very uncomfortable conversation. And then with clients, I'm pretty like one of the first things I try to be upfront with clients about is like how much therapy is going to cost them. So those conversations I feel like are never uncomfortable for me because I'm comfortable being upfront because I think that's the biggest question everyone has, especially clients who have never done therapy before. They have no idea how much it costs. They don't know if it's a lot or a little. I mean, it's really a toss up with like how much they know. So that's one of the first things I always talk to clients about is like, okay, here's what this is going to look like. Can you do it? And if you can't, then, you know, we have resources around here that are free or sliding scale. Super quick announcement. This is Lindsay. Duh. I wanted to let you know that if you are a private practice therapist who is in the process of filling up their practice with clients, but you're struggling with how to set fees and how to think about your money in a holistic way so that you can cultivate a sustainable practice. I am thrilled to let you know that Grow a Profitable Practice from the Inside Out, my nine-week group coaching program for private practice therapists, will be reopening its doors very soon. We are not ready quite yet, so what I want you to do if you're interested is go to www.mindmoneybalance.com slash profitable practice, all one word, and make sure to put your name on the wait list so you will get notified just as soon as those doors open. Again, that's mindmoneybalance.com slash profitable practice.
Do you take insurance in your practice? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I take two insurance. I'm paneled with two insurances and then also self-pay. Around here, we have a lot, a lot of people reaching out that want to use their insurance. Yeah, of course. And I think that's pretty typical regardless of where you are. And I think this hybrid model of saying I'm on panel with one or two insurance providers and then saying I'm also fee for service is really helpful, especially for those of you listening who are private practice therapists who might be in that kind of growth stage of your business. I don't think it's a bad idea to be on one or two insurance panels. And sure, they're reimbursing you 70, 80% of your full fee. And at the same time, it helps you kind of grow your caseload. And then if you decide once you're full or once you're 80% full to say, I'm going to de-panel, then at least you have a nice caseload already built up and you've kind of made your mark in, in the community. So I like that idea. I want to go back to what you had said about having a conversation with a therapist about kind of being beholden to student loans. And I was having, I was raking leaves yesterday in my neighborhood and my neighbor came up and they know what I do. And we got on the conversation of, of why do you think we don't teach financial literacy in our schools? And I went like big conspiracy theory. I was like, it's big banks, bro. Like straight up, it's the less we know about finances, the more these banks are profiting off of us. And, you know, I said it kind of ironically, but not really. So again, this idea of financial literacy, as I listen to you, has become such an important part of your relationship with money. And you also mentioned earlier that you like to read personal finance books. What are some of the books that you have found to be most helpful for you on your journey? So the number one book, and I just read it this past summer that I love is called The Simple Path to Wealth it's by J.L. Collins. That's like an OG fire movement book. And he just really puts it out there for you of like every tangible thing you should be doing. Like he gives you the names of the index funds that he recommends. Because that's where I feel like so many people get caught up in not wanting to invest is like, it's a whole other world. Like you feel like you need to be like a finance major to figure this stuff out, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and you really don't. And it's actually so, so simple. Hence the name of the book, the method that he follows. And that's what I do too. So I wish I could have had that book at 18 years old. That would have been like so helpful for me to learn about. So that's my number one favorite book. I'm trying to think I've been reading a lot of like fire movement books, but I know there were some before, I think I read like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Profit First, all of the like, you know, the ones The that typical everyone... check off the list. These are the money books you need to read. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've been trying to diversify though who I listen to about my money because I've just realized from being like a personal finance nerd that white men are just like everywhere in this business. And yes. <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm sure you feel that. It is just like, I have mixed feelings about that, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been trying to diversify, like, here's a book written by a woman. Here's a book by a woman of color or a man of color. Like, it's just really hard to find those, but I don't want to be lazy in that either. You know, Mm -hmm. you can find blogs, Mm -hmm. like, even if it's not a book. Um, So I've been trying to, like, diversify who I'm listening to a little bit better. 
As you said that I follow Hey Berna, who is Berna Anat, and she's a fellow Panay, so she's Filipina, and she calls the personal finance industry hella male and hella pale. <laughs> and I just love it because it totally is. Like if you Google, like I mentioned, personal finance, it's gonna be white dudes and not like young white dudes. It's mostly 50 plus white dudes. So I love that you are intentionally diversifying your bookshelf and getting other methods of information because again, as we do this work, it's so important that we, we hear things from different angles and from, from different um, ideologies. So I love that you are, are taking that active step. I want to dive a little bit into the spiritual. You and I are both Enneagram 8s, and I'm curious how that shows up with your money. And before we even do that, I'll do like a very brief spiel on what the Enneagram is, and please correct me if I'm wrong. The Enneagram is essentially a, a lens through which you can view your personality, and there are nine distinct types. The origin of the Enneagram is somewhat unknown. It's, it's kind of rooted in mysticism, potentially Judaism. We don't really know where it started, but it's been around for a long time, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's gotten this resurgence over the past few years as more and more people dive into spirituality. So you and I are both Enneagram 8s, which is gets the moniker, the challenger. I'm curious how using the Enneagram helps you and how it shows up with your relationship with money. Yeah, I love the Enneagram. I remember when I first read like my first Enneagram book and reading the type eight, I was like, oh my gosh, there's other people out there that think like this. Like this is the only one that makes sense to me. <laughs> like it really just clicked. Um, I think Enneagram eights are known to be like the most likely to work for themselves. Have you read that? No, but it makes perfect sense because I think we can't stand bureaucracy and rules for no reason. I love rules when they make sense, but rules just to have rules drives me bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. So I think along that same vein, like I think I always knew I wanted to work for myself because to me, I love, like, I'm passionate. Like, Enneagram 8s are really passionate about the things that they do care about. So I'm super, super passionate about the things that I care about, which is, like, my business, my clients, financial literacy, all of those things I will go, like, head first into. And I like to have control of them. I'm not going to lie. Like, that's a big part of it, I think. And it's also just, I know Enneagram 8s are known to be, like, like we hate injustice, right? Like we're kind of against the man. We don't want to like work for anyone. That yeah. resonates yes. so much with me. Like I love what I do and I want to do it in the way that is most aligned with like my own values. And that's okay if more. someone mm -hmm. else, yeah, that's okay if someone else's values are different, but that's why it's so, it feels so right for me to be in private practice because I have the control and I can, you know, our healthcare system is extremely broken and taking insurance. I see that up close and personal. Like I know one of the insurances I take, they're about to cut teletherapy and I hope that they don't, they have no reason to right? like that makes no sense, but it's like, we all have to bend to the will of what these big insurance companies say. That to me is injustice. Mm -hmm. That is not right. And without going down that rabbit hole, it's just, it's a nice thing to be like, to have that control 
in private practice as much as you can and to feel like you're providing a service in a social justice oriented way, I guess, you know, like that's my lens. I hope I try the best I can for that to be my lens. So I love that I can integrate that into my business. I love that too. So Alyssa, where can people find you? Where do you hang out? How can people get in touch with you? So I have an Instagram account. It's called creative practice building. It's just fun. It's fun. I post stuff that is for therapists. I post stuff that I'm working on in my own business. So I post a lot about SEO, marketing, mindset, stuff like that. It's really just for fun, but I love doing it. And I was super inspired by people like you and a couple other therapists on Instagram that were kind of documenting their journey. Like it inspired me so much. So I figured I could do this too, right? So that's where I hang out. Mm -hmm. And what's your website? Yes. My website is Crooked River Counseling Services. It's a mouthful. (laughs) But yeah, that's my website too, if you want to check that out. Love it. So creative practice building is the Instagram handle where we can find you. And if people are more interested, if there are college students listening to this in the Ohio area, they can go to your website. Thank you so much, Alyssa. This was such a great conversation and I will see you on the gram, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. The three takeaways from today's episode with Alyssa are really important. Number one was that her journey with money and her relationship to it has evolved. And I know that I have shared that takeaway before, and I'll probably share it again, because where we are with money today is not indicative of where we will go in our relationship with money. And it also doesn't mean that we cannot grow from where we came from with money. And in Alyssa's case, she specifically pointed out a personal finance guy, Dave Ramsey, who I'm sure you guys have all heard from or heard of at this point in time. And what I liked is that she said she took what served her and then got rid of the things that did not serve her. So in this case, she said using some of his his methods to help pay off her student loans were incredibly helpful. And then she said, you know what, the idea of the debt snowball just didn't resonate. And if you want more information on the debt snowball versus the debt avalanche, I encourage you to tune into episode 28, which is Financial Knowledge is Power with Megan Costello. We dove into the snowball versus avalanche method there, so you can get more information there. But with Alyssa, what she said was, look, I, I took what served and I got rid of the things that did not, and that helped me to cultivate cultivate a healthy relationship with what I wanted to do in my debt freedom journey. Takeaway number two is the importance of diversifying where you get your info. As I mentioned in the episode, Berna Anat always says that personal finance is hella male and hella pale, and I couldn't agree more. And I appreciate that Alyssa said, look, I have been a personal finance nerd. I have consumed a lot of information, and at the same time, I'm recognizing how that information comes from a an echo chamber of traditionally older white dudes and I'm, I'm striving to diversify where I get my info. So if you are also trying to figure out how to get your info from people that isn't representative of that demographic, there are so many good options today. I really love Bola Shokunbi. She is the founder of Clever Girl Finance. She has written one book and number two should be out very soon on investing. 
but she's a great person to get some information from. I mentioned Berna Anat. I think she's another wonderful person to get information from. So those are just like two people of hundreds of people who are offering insight on money these days. And then takeaway number three was how she built her practice with aligned clients and how we can apply that to our relationship with money is making sure that we are spending, saving, and investing in alignment with our values. So for her, she said, you know, I'm saying no to certain clients who aren't a good fit, but when it comes to you in your relationship with money, say no to spending on stuff that just does not serve you. Say yes to spending lavishly on the things that bring you joy and happiness. You know, research shows that in many cases, spending money on experiences is a good use of our money. But, but, but (laughs) if you have a specific material thing that brings you a lot of joy, you will actually get a better happiness return on investment on spending on that thing. So don't let other people's beliefs about money color the way in which you want to spend and save and invest. So again, alignment, alignment, alignment is the name of the game. And with that, let's wrap up this episode and I will see you right here next week. As always, if you loved this episode, take a screenshot of it make sure to tag me at Mind Money Balance. And if you especially enjoyed this episode with Alyssa, make sure to tag her at Creative Practice Building. We don't see the shares unless you tag us. So make sure to tag us. Sharing is caring. And I'll see you right here next week. If you love this episode, take a screenshot and tag me on Instagram at Mind Money Balance with your favorite takeaway. I love seeing what resonates with my listeners and sharing it in my stories. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you next week right here. Neither the host or guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, medical, or other professional information. If you want professional help, please seek it out.